welcome back everyone to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. Today, our guest is Dr. Victor Nizay. To quote his Wikipedia bio, Victor Nizay, MD, is a distinguished professor of pediatrics, scientist, and physician. He is the vice chair of basic research at the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. He is also a distinguished professor at the UCSD Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. He is known for research in the areas of molecular microbiology and the innate immune system, with a particular focus on infectious diseases caused by common gram-positive bacterial pathogens, such as group A streptococcus, group B streptococcus, and staphylococcus aureus. As you will learn from our conversation, Victor's laboratory is changing the way we treat infectious disease. He is a brilliant scientist and communicator, but more importantly, he has a big heart and truly cares about people. He's also super witty and posts great memes on Twitter. Follow him at, at Victor Nizay. In this conversation, Victor and I talk about antimicrobial resistance and his lab's recent publication identifying novel treatment strategies for staph aureus-induced sepsis. We also talk about Victor's philosophies related to science and mentorship. You can find links to the article, Victor's Twitter handle, and the Nizay Lab website in the show notes. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Victor Nizay. My first question for you is related to your education. My understanding is that you grew up in Santa Barbara and then went to Oregon for your undergraduate education. Could you tell me what you studied as an undergrad? Well, at Reed College, which is a liberal arts college in Portland, um, they're known for having strong science programs. I was actually a biology major, and at the time I was interested in evolutionary ecology. For my senior thesis, I studied frogs, actually the South African clawed toad, Xenopus labus, and uh, its strategy for surviving in a variable environment. Uh, you might imagine uh, you have a female frog and a male frog, and they're each contributing to the progeny, right? So you could have a couple different strategies. Either you could make uh, a ton of low-quality embryos, and that would be a good strategy in a year where everything was benign, a lot of water, a lot of food, low predation. Or you could make a few high-quality embryos, and that would be a good strategy if there was desiccation. They'd need to metamorphose into a tadpole and a polywog and a frog earlier. Uh, avoid predation. And it turns out that uh, if it was purely genetic, then you'd uh, expect a 50-50 contribution from the father and the mother to larval growth variation. But if there was a big environmental component, then the mother, through the energy that she delivers to one egg, would contribute more. And I did a bunch of crosses, and I measured all the growth rates of the embryos. And it turned out it was mostly maternal. And then we came up with a model evolutionarily where instead of putting all your eggs in one genetic basket, if you basically flipped a coin each year in an unsteady environment, that was actually a better strategy. And I do think that evolutionary biology uh, stuck with me because... Uh, I ultimately went to medical school uh, at Stanford, and among all the different subjects, we studied infectious disease, where you have the pathogen in this constant evolutionary battle with the immune system of the host, brought back those uh, kind of questions that I had an early interest in. So that sort of battle between the host and the microbe has led to a a topic of particular import today, which is antimicrobial resistance. Can you briefly explain what antimicrobial resistance is and why we should care about it? Yeah, so antimicrobials, um, 
antibiotics, and of course, we also have medicines to treat viral infections and antiparasitic infections. Uh, we group those together as antimicrobials. Um, uh, resistance means that you have uh, either at the molecular level, meaning you try to treat the bacteria with your drug and it no longer suppresses the growth or is able to kill the bacteria, the bacteria survives, it is resistant to the action of the antibiotic, is one level to define it. Another level you could define in the context of the patient. Uh, it's possible that the drug works on the bacteria in the test tube, but when you're trying to treat the patient, you just can't clear their infection. So that infection is effectively antibiotic resistant, but in a more complex way, probably also incorporating aspects of the host immune system. So I don't think there's a better example uh, that we have of pure Darwinian evolution in biology than antibiotic resistance that you can see in front of your eyes. Really anybody in the laboratory can take bacteria, expose them uh, serially to low concentrations of an antibiotic and watch them develop resistance against that antibiotic. And that resistance is usually due to genetic change uh, that has been selected. Resistant strains are the ones that survive and they replicate. Unfortunately, that is happening in the human population in the context of medicine and many of the antibiotics that we relied on for decades are no longer guaranteed to be effective in treating patients. And a lot of the most common and serious infections now require second or third line drugs and the success rate in treating these infections is diminishing. There have been a lot of calculations uh, that suggest antibiotic resistance uh, might be a contributing factor to up to 19-20% of human mortality. And there's really no break on this evolutionary process. So we need to find uh, more creative ways to discover new antibiotics, and I think even more importantly, new kinds of antibiotics to confront this threat. So basically, it's a pandemic. Uh, antibiotic resistance is at a pandemic level. It's present uh, disproportionately, as with many other infectious diseases in the developing world. Disproportionately affects those uh, that are at the extremes of age, young children, the elderly, those with underlying medical conditions, and those who are uh, in the hospital are for one reason or another might actually encounter uh, an antibiotic-resistant pathogen in the course of their uh, treatment and recovery. So very, very important issue. A fair amount of attention has been placed on it, but I think still a need for more investment at the government level, at the public policy level, and in terms of the pharmaceutical industry viewing antibiotic resistance as priority issue moving forward. There have been some factors uh, in uh, the pharmaceutical industry that tend to view development of new antibiotics as not a very profitable domain. You know, first of all, you only treat the patient for a few weeks, then hopefully their infection is cured and they no longer need your medicine anymore. So compared to a hypertension drug or a diabetes drug that you could give the patient for years and years, the treatment window is smaller. Uh, and second, resistance itself uh, means that there's a risk that after all the money you invest in bringing a drug to the market, that the bacteria could evolve resistance and your drug would no longer be the first choice uh, for that treatment. And then there's also a tradition uh, that antibiotics, because they were some of the first medicines, uh, are also inexpensive medicines. They're only supposed to cost tens of dollars or hundreds of dollars uh, 
for an IV course rather than the many thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars that are ascribed to new immunotherapies for cancer, for example. And so the drug companies also have uh, seen greater profit potential in those types of medicine. So there needs to be some reform, some private-public partnerships to address this issue and to create incentives for novel antibiotic development. Your lab is definitely doing its part on many fronts with, with this problem. Your group recently published a paper in Science Translational Medicine that I'd like to talk about. And this paper was related to a particular pathogen, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and a form of disease it can cause, which is sepsis. Could you explain a little bit about what sepsis is briefly and how your lab is trying to provide an alternative way to treat sepsis? Sepsis is really one of the most dangerous and deadly forms of infectious disease, and it's uh, the final lethal pathway uh, for a lot of pathogens that can spread deeper into the body, through the bloodstream, affect multiple organs. Uh, so it's basically when uh, an infection is beginning to overwhelm the body. Sepsis is characterized not only by the spread of the pathogen, usually a bacterium in the body, but also by an out-of-control host response to infection. Because if the initial immune response is insufficient to clear the pathogen, then the immune response is continually playing catch-up. And as the infection becomes more widespread in the body, the amount of inflammation that is being generated by the immune system begins to have serious adverse effects on the body and the function of all the organs in your body. So your blood pressure might drop, your lungs can fail in their gas exchange, uh, your kidneys can fail and you can stop producing urine, uh, your liver can fail and you might be subject to bleeding, you can lose uh, fluid from the blood spaces into the tissues. And uh, this is what we call multi-organ failure or multi-organ dysfunction. And uh, when that is occurring, uh, you definitely need excellent doctors and to be in an ICU to support the function of these different organs. That might include medicines and fluids to support your blood pressure, uh, you could be put on dialysis to support the kidneys. You could be receiving blood products to support the failed clotting factors from the liver or to support the immune system where the bone marrow might be failing. All of these um, interventions are necessary to keep the patient alive. And the only direct therapy that we might have is the antibiotics that are being used to treat the pathogen. Uh, and unfortunately, despite uh, hundreds of clinical trials uh, with sepsis as an indication, uh, there is currently no approved drug for sepsis beyond this type of ICU-supportive care and uh, the antibiotics that we're administering. So our lab has been very interested in seeing if there's things that we can do in studying the host pathogen interaction more carefully and wonder if there's ways that we can either use antibiotics more cleverly or repurpose other drugs that are used in medicine with the aim of improving the resiliency of the host, improving the immune function of the host, so that they can get through this sepsis. So you mentioned MRSA as a cause for sepsis. Uh, Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus uh, refers to 
those strains of the major human pathogen, Staph aureus, itself probably the most common cause of bloodstream infections, and when it is resistant to antibiotics, that only complicates the therapy further. This infection has uh, around 15 to 25% mortality, and that mortality has not improved over several decades, uh, despite a lot of advances in ICU care and new antibiotics coming through. And we've been very interested in kind of looking more closely at those patients uh, and trying to understand uh, from all the laboratory parameters, uh, are there any clues that might offer us new pathways to treat sepsis? So in this particular research study that you're describing, we looked at patients that were receiving standard of care antibiotic therapy for uh, sepsis with Staph aureus. And we asked uh, on their initial blood culture, uh, when the staph was identified, if we looked at the blood counts that were drawn simultaneously, was there anything in their blood count that would later predict whether the patient survived or died in the hands of these excellent doctors in the ICU? And we found that uh, the white blood cells, which people would think normally would be the most important part of your immune system in defending against bacteria, uh, they could be high, they could be low in these patients. There wasn't a particular statistical correlation with their outcome. But a different cell in the blood, a tiny cell that's not really thought of most often as an immune cell, but a cell involved in blood clotting, the platelet, we found that when the platelet count was low, below 100,000 in these patients at the time they were first being admitted to the hospital with what proved to be sepsis, there was a significantly higher risk of mortality, even in the face of antibiotic therapy. So we thought that is something interesting that we can explore in the laboratory. So the simplest experiment we thought to start this, and this was work led by a PharmD PhD student, Josh Sun, a member of the UCSD Biomedical Sciences graduate program, and a project scientist in the lab, Satoshi Uchiyama, who's an MD PhD, as well as our clinical colleagues, George Sekoulis and Warren Rose. And what we found is that if you drew blood from a healthy individual and purified the different cells from the blood and asked which one of those cells killed staph better, it turned out it wasn't the neutrophils or the macrophages. It was the platelets. Platelets had the ability to kill staph aureus. Uh, and this was different than other common bacteria like pneumococcus and group A strep and group B strep, which are resistant to platelet killing. So that was the first interesting finding. The second finding was we, we took uh, mice and we infected them with staph and we asked what happened to their blood count in the few hours after you infected them with staph. And what we saw is that their blood count dropped rather quickly when they were infected with the staph. So it seemed that the staph was trying to drive down the platelets, yet the platelets had the ability to kill the staph. So this was a battle that we saw was probably raging in your bloodstream. The vast majority of the time uh, for healthy individuals and even most patients with staph sepsis, their platelet count stays strong and they're able, with the aid of the platelets, to clear the bacteria from the blood. But occasionally, and this is what we went on to delve into more detail, the platelet count collapses. And when your platelet count becomes very low, then you've lost a critical element of your defense against the staph, and you might be at very high risk of mortality, even in the face of antibiotic therapy and ICU care. The next thing we did was to try to figure out what is it about the bacteria 
that drives down the platelet count. And what we found is that there was a toxin that is made by the vast majority of staph strains. It's known as the alpha toxin or alpha hemolysin. And if we looked at the patients who had staph infections and measured the amount of alpha toxin that their particular staph isolate produced, the more alpha toxin, the lower their platelet count. So there was a correlation there. So that led us into the laboratory where Nina Haste, uh, another PharmD PhD student, who's now the director of ID Pharmacy for Jacobs Medical Center, uh, had made a mutant uh, that lacked the alpha toxin in the staph. So now we had a wild type bacteria and a mutant bacteria, one that produces the toxin, one that doesn't. And when we infected mice, we found that the bacteria that lacked the toxin no longer drove the platelet count down. And in fact, the staph was more easily cleared by the blood when it was lacking the toxin and more easily cleared in the mouse. It didn't uh, spread to the organs. So now we pinned it to that particular toxin. So what could we do about this? Uh, would that mean that we could treat animals uh, and humans ultimately any differently? Well, uh, it turns out that once you recognize that there's a new element of your immune response, in this case, the platelet, an underappreciated cell in your blood that could be important, there's a lot of medicines that we use in the clinic that act on platelets. Typically, they're used when uh, you worry that somebody has a propensity to having blood clots, like somebody who had a heart attack and had blood clots in their coronary arteries, or somebody who had a stroke and had a blood clots um, in their cerebral arteries. Those patients are often put on what we call antiplatelet drugs or blood thinners. Aspirin is a common drug in this category, but there's many other uh, more sophisticated and specific ones. So we wondered whether all these drugs that change platelet biology, whether any of them would change the platelet interaction with the staph. There we got lucky with a specific observation that one commonly prescribed class of antiplatelet drugs, which we call P2Y12 inhibitors, a good example of that is ticagrelor, which goes by the brand name Berlinta, a very common medicine given to people after heart attacks or strokes to reduce the risk of recurrence. If we treated human blood with Berlinta or human platelets with Berlinta, they were less susceptible to damage from the bacterial toxin and better at killing the bacteria. And then we went into the mice and we treated them with the typical kind of human doses of this drug uh, that you would give for its anti-clotting potential and found uh, that those mice were better able to clear staph from their blood. And in fact, even in the absence of antibiotics, we could significantly reduce the mortality of staph infection. So a drug that tens of millions of people take safely, chronically, could be repurposed, or some call it repositioned, as an aid to treating patients with bacterial infection. And now we published a few follow-up papers uh, showing that in individual patients that administration of ticagrelor helped them clear the staph bacteria and helped their platelet count rebound in the face of staph infection. And even a big clinical study uh, looking at thousands of patients who were taking P2Y12 inhibitors in a large VA cohort uh, seemed to suggest there was reduced mortality. So now we're waiting to see whether um, uh, any large clinical consortium who studies 
these diseases could do a clinical trial where they add a drug like ticagrelor or perhaps even a faster acting, easier to turn on and off P2Y12 inhibitor on top of standard of care for staph bacteremia and see if we can support the platelet-mediated defense. There is another platelet-targeting drug that you were able to repurpose for treating sepsis in these mice, and that was Oseltamivir or Tamiflu. Have there been follow-up studies showing any efficacy of, of that sort of repurposing in, in human patients? Yeah, so I'll explain that. That was uh, another interesting aspect. Um, you know, platelets' uh, lifespan in the blood is about eight or nine days. And uh, we had previously been interested in studying some of the factors that govern uh, platelet lifespan. And one of the key factors is that platelets are covered with a lot of glycoproteins. And typically the terminal sugar uh, on the end of every one of those glycoproteins is a sugar called sialic acid. Actually, UCSD, uh, led by Ajit Varki here in cellular and molecular medicine, uh, has been one of the pioneers in sialic acid research, uh, along with Jamie Marth, who is now uh, an investigator at the Burnham Institute here in San Diego. And we found actually that the alpha toxin, in addition to potentially damaging the platelets, was also activating an enzyme in the platelets called sialidase, which caused it to cleave off the sialic acid from its own surface. And when the sialic acid is lost on the surface of platelets, they are cleared through the liver by a receptor called the Ashwell-Morel receptor, uh, which recognizes the sugar that is normally hidden beneath the sialic acid. And this is what controls platelet lifespan. So when you get a staph infection, one of the reasons that the platelet count goes down is because the platelets are becoming desialylated and uh, removed prematurely through the liver faster than the bone marrow can replace them. We did some further investigation into this and showed that if you knocked out the Ashwell receptor in the liver, those mice uh, were unable to clear the desialylated platelets and were more resistant to staph infection because the platelet count never went down. So we thought, huh, there are some medicines in uh, the clinic uh, that are used in this case to treat influenza infection, oseltamivir or Tamiflu, that are sialidase inhibitors. Normally, we're trying to block the viral sialidase, which contributes to the spread of flu in the body, but maybe we could use the same drug to block the platelet sialidase because there is a little bit of promiscuity, as we say, in the action of this drug. And we found that when we treated with oseltamivir, the platelet count also stayed up in response to staph infection and provided similar protection to the animals. So we believe that oseltamivir could be another safe drug. Uh, to my knowledge, um, there haven't been any specific trials of oseltamivir to treat staph infection, but it is very interesting to note that there is a classic association between primary influenza infection and staph superinfection, uh, leading to dangerous pneumonia and sepsis. And a lot of the mortality, for example, in the 1918 flu pandemic, was felt to actually occur from bacterial superinfection of the patients who had the pandemic flu. Actually, uh, a young scientist uh, back in uh, the 1980s named uh, Anthony Fauci uh, wrote an article uh, reviewing this. And so uh, it could be that part of the association of the influenza with the severe staph infections is that the platelets are already being desialylated by the virus, 
and are already down this pathway to rapid clearance and therefore more likely to collapse in the face of staph infection. So it's that particular angle that we're beginning to uh, explore in the lab. But you're right, uh, someone else could uh, explore this in infection. One challenge, and it's a practical challenge, and I guess you'd have to put yourself in the shoes of the drug companies uh, to understand it, but imagine if you had a P2Y12 inhibitor or an influenza drug that was still under patent, that you had invested a ton of money, and now it's widely popular and used extensively for its primary indication. There's probably not much additional market or additional benefit in uh, these drug companies studying it per se in sepsis. So it's kind of left up to us academics to think about novel ways that we could, we could use the medicine. But I'm encouraged that somebody will try it, in part because of how common staph infections are, and there's always a thirst uh, for new treatments. And I see some chatter uh, in the uh, Twitter and, um, and at conferences about people contemplating how they might be able to study uh, these phenomenon that we uh, revealed in these basic research papers. Very cool. It seems very promising. I did like how you noted in the article the limitations of the work. Could you talk a little bit about some of those limitations? Yeah, no, I think that with uh, sepsis, you have a multifactorial etiology, right? Uh, multiple different bacteria can cause uh, sepsis. And uh, there's also a timing where individual patients might come to medical attention at different stages of their infection, which might make the yield of instituting a particular therapy or the benefit may require early administration course, it would have to be in patients, in this case, with staph infection. We do believe there's a few other infections uh, that might respond in the same way. But for example, we don't expect that certain bacteria like group A strep and pneumococcus that are resistant to platelet killing would have much benefit from this type of therapy. So you'd have to have very specific and timely diagnosis. Uh, another thing is, of course, there might be some patients who themselves are at very high risk of bleeding because they might have already had uh, liver failure or maybe at the time they're presenting with sepsis, uh, there could be some concern for a cerebrovascular bleed. Uh, so there might be physicians that are reluctant to administer uh, the medications to patients uh, assessing that the bleeding risk might outweigh the therapeutic benefit of supporting the platelet count. Fortunately, you know, although our results pointed to a opportunity to repurpose these particular medicines, it's really a whole pathway that makes you think about staph infection differently. And conceivably, you could give a drug that would be an antibody that would block the toxin to catch it upstream. Or maybe you would just replace platelets in these patients. Platelet transfusions are a fairly common thing that we would do in the ICU. Normally, we would wait until the patient's platelet count is very low, like 40 or something where we really worried about bleeding, but maybe if it's a staph infection, you would do that at an earlier time point to support it. As with most discoveries, uh, they're made in a way where the story came together following uh, some logic, but sitting back and looking at the next steps, often there's even additional directions that you can go. I'd like to switch gears a little bit now to talk about you and your mentorship and how you run your lab. I have like kind of some 
standard questions I like to ask everyone, and everyone kind of gives me some different answers, so I think it's okay, it's let's, insightful. Let's see where so, I take it. I'm going to be selfish right now and ask advice for myself. So if you could make a billboard, metaphorically speaking, and advertise some sentence or picture to all PhD students that are about to do a postdoc, like one piece of advice, what would be the, the main message you'd like to get across? Yeah, over the years I've had uh, quite a large number of PhD students and postdocs pursue academic careers. And I wouldn't say there's like a single core personality trait or style or interest area that is common among them. There are many different ways that you can use your own individuality to a successful career in academics. I would emphasize a few things that the job that you're about to do is maybe less about the pure brilliance of the scientific ideas than you might think it is, but it's a job, A, about people, and B, about writing and communicating. Because, um, you know, the currency of our field is to be able to communicate good ideas, to enlist support in terms of collaborators, the trainees that will populate your future lab, the granting agencies that will provide the support. That is through communication and vision. And then you want everybody to feel energized and important in their role in moving the field forward, which forces you to explore a little bit more deeply into their motivations, where they want to be. And I think inverting the dynamic a little bit rather than simply articulating a scientific question and trying to enlist people to, to pursue it with you, trying to find people that are a good fit uh, with you personally, that you see are motivated, find out where they want to get, enter into really a, a mentorship is a type of collaboration, a special type of collaboration, and help them gain the tools to get where they want to go, and the science will actually beautifully backfill into this goal, and excellent science will get done along that way. This approach to me has had legs. Now, it may be a little different, uh, although I've had many PhD students in the lab, maybe about 20 that have uh, completed their doctorate with me. I don't have a PhD myself. You know, so really the, my understanding of the PhD is in part vicarious through these um, training experiences that we've worked through together. But what I did train for uh, was to be a pediatrician, a physician. And physicians work in teams. They work on challenging uh, imperfect data sets, which are called patients, in my case, patients and their families. And uh, we're very practical. We assemble collaborative teams. We appreciate the critical contributions of nurses and respiratory therapists and social workers to achieving the good outcome. It's not just the doctor uh, in charge uh, that dictates the whole course. And I think I've just kind of brought that same kind of approach to my science. It may have shaped my science to work on more interdisciplinary topics and to work on a broad variety of topics over the years and to maybe favor translational research over purely basic questions. But it's been fun to me. Uh, so I think just understanding and finding a career pathway 
where the human aspect, the collaborative aspect, the communication aspect is front and center, and that you then find science that, that lends itself to that, I think works well. You know, as a, as a medical student, you might be aware that typically, you know, in the last two years of medical school, you rotate through all these different specialties, right? So I ended up being a pediatrician. I, I enjoy working with families and, and children. But, you know, I also rotated in surgery. I rotated in psychiatry. I think I could have been very happy as a psychiatrist, very happy as a trauma surgeon, very happy as a epidemiologist, as a radiologist. There's so many exciting avenues in medicine, and I think people should recognize that about science, too. There'll be certain topics that create passion, but, but I think that if you're getting exciting data uh, that's novel and you see a story coming through, I bet most of the scientists who might now be working in stem cells, if they were presented that, uh, working in neuroscience or infectious disease or pure genetics would be super excited and would be flying on that project too. So, you know, a long time ago, there were people like, you know, Da Vinci, who was an artist and he was working on astronomy and human medicine and making new vehicles and things like that. It was so broad. Uh, and you wonder, like, how can those people exist, you know, and he's also painting. But today, you know, there's been this hyper-specialization and people driven by particular topics. I, I just feel like your love of science will have legs if you surround yourself with good people, make it about the people, make it about the journey. You know, and I just try to try to do it that way meet with people frequently, ask them what their goals are, and then ask them how their activities are helping them achieve those goals. Early on, people will realize that, you know, most goals are related to getting and communicating good data, which we do through papers anyways. So they come at the same conclusion that if you just drive home the scientific goal and put a lot of pressure on, on the outcome, I want to give them the tools to be a, a sustained scientist. So that was more like an Oxford English dictionary than a, than a billboard. <laughs> but you, you're talking about, you know, people's careers. And I simply can't put it into a nutshell because I've had people in my lab who went on to be primarily educators, uh, people in my lab who went into science policy. A lot of them have their own labs, but some of them are, small by design. Others are ambitious and they're trying to get their third R01 grant. Some are very interdisciplinary. Some are very focused. Some are at small liberal arts colleges. Others are at major research universities. Many are now going into industry or collaborating uh, at the interface between academics and industry. And there's probably a little bit of a different strategic skill set to achieve any one of those pathways. And uh, as you're no doubt aware, some people are looking at uh, the opportunities to move right into pathways right out of their graduate work. My last three graduate students have gone right to exciting industry jobs without a postdoc. Uh, at the time that I was completing medical school, my friends in the lab, they had nothing on their mind but a postdoc. That was a, a, an expected de rigor next step uh, that you would do. And it's still obviously very important for those that are going to have a primary academic career, but there's so many outstanding careers there and maybe less difference than you might expect between industry and academia. A little bit of the, the skills and the emphasis are different, but there's excellent science and and excellent teamwork at the root of all these pathways. What is some 
bad advice that you hear propagated that people should ignore in science, like as a trainee? Yeah, I mean, I see um, a lot of emphasis in graduate work on that, you know, the thesis must be very, very focused on a rather narrow topic and, you know, you should do three chapters that are somehow linear to one another and everything must be hypothesis driven, but you can just open any issue of whatever your favorite uh, top journal in your field or the, the favorite general science journals like Science, Cell and Nature and flip through those articles and ask me how many of those are narrow hypothesis driven papers. You know, typically they're multiple labs. They had a hypothesis or a discovery at the core, but then they're taken with a lot of complementary methodologies to prove the robustness, maybe taken in a practical and translational direction. And as part of all these papers, there's an incredible amount of creative work and maybe an incredible amount of learning and an incredible amount of scientific development for the people participating in it. And many of them, you know, may have had the opportunity to kind of envision this whole ambitious thing coming together. But there are still some dinosaurs on thesis committees who would have considered what ended up being a middle author contribution or what ended up being developing a technique or developing a software algorithm or work that led to a patent as not as advantageous as a, a pure hypothesis-driven research, even when it came to kind of a boring conclusion. So I think we need to modernize our understanding of the variety of pursuits and activities that have done at a very high quality level and reflecting the same amount of work and dedication and attention uh, to detail and that, that produce quality results that were analyzed in a rigorous manner, that these are all worthy of, of scientific thesis and, and PhD degrees because they actually reflect what you're going to be doing <laughs> in the real world not just generating uh, hypotheses, but uh, solving problems as part of teams and overcoming technical challenges, things like that. So I think our graduate training needs to reflect that a little bit. At a little bit later of a career stage, there is a traditional emphasis, and this is a little bit corollary to what I was just talking about on independence, like you must do something that is, you know, completely independent of your mentor. You know, that works well for a lot of people. Obviously, very simple. Uh, if you're uh, single, completely mobile, I'm just going to, you know, uh, leave my university where I did my graduate work or postdoc and go across the country and do something completely different than what my mentor did. And of course, excellent mentors will relinquish uh, leadership of that project uh, to their former trainees. But that's not possible for everybody. People have lives and quality of lives. They, they may be tied by important family considerations, a partner's job, uh, health issues in the family, financial issues, uh, where it doesn't make sense, you know, to move someplace else that might be more expensive. And maybe the science they're conducting benefits by having access to the platforms and the research in the mentor, former mentor's lab. So why can't those people, you know, be viewed as, as just as accomplished and just as a promising a young scientist as the one who separated themselves uh, completely? because they're working hard. They should, of course, be the senior author of these new papers, but what if they worked with a postdoc in their former mentor's lab who contributed to the paper? 
and the former lab or middle authors on the paper. You know, we need to believe in the autonomy of these scientists because most science is, is large uh, platform. Because we force people to do independence for independence sake, we put them on an island. Usually when you're just starting out, you may not have all the right resources. You may not have the most experienced trainees than you will later in your career. And then maybe you produce a more modest paper, and then the study section says, well, you know, that paper's okay. It's not as dynamic as their postdoc work. So you put them in these catch-22s where you demand independence, and then you punish the less well-resourced, less ambitious project, which is all that was really feasible based on that independence. So that's another, another thing that I'm trying to uh, fight against. I train a lot of physician scientists too in the laboratory at all stages. And one piece of advice I want to give to them is just be yourself. You know, the stuff that you're learning in the clinics about seeing the big picture, about being very practical, about working as a team, you can be that person in the lab too and be successful. I actually see a lot of similarities between doing great PhD lab work and being a great doctor. And I think some of the greatest PhD trainees that I had would have been great doctors and vice versa, but sometimes they try to be two different people in the two arenas. I think sometimes that's bad advice or they don't feel they can succeed in the other arena. And I'm like, you know, dude, you're running a code in the ICU. Do you think this Western blot that you just need to do is really more complicated than that? You just need to do the experiment. It's kind of like following a recipe and then talk to other smart people about it and we'll come up with the next step. And so there's a lot of barriers that people have. And I see among basic scientists somehow having fear of working on translational research sometimes. I think if you're enthusiastic and curious and uh, do the legwork to get trained in the complementary area, there's no limit to which way you can, you can take your career. So I don't want people to be pigeonholed based on where they, where they start. I see that a lot, you know, doing admissions for the graduate program. I ask people, like, what are you interested in? And they say, um, you know, like map kinase signaling. You just came from an undergrad. <laughs> How are you interested in MAP kinase signaling? Because you were looking for a, a research opportunity as an undergrad. There was one lab opening. You met the PI. They were a nice person. And you worked on MAP kinase signaling. But I, I think people should recognize that there's a whole wide world uh, out there. That's why I really like uh, being part of the biomedical sciences graduate program with its huge diverse faculty and an institution like UCSD, which has strengths in so many areas um, that students can end up in uh, exciting projects that they wouldn't have anticipated from the start. And that's one of the, the magic things about science. Do you have a favorite failure, something that may have been perceived as a failure throughout your life that looking back seems like kind of a blessing in disguise. Anything come to mind? That's interesting. I mean, certainly my career pathway went a lot different at multiple different uh, stages um, than what I was envisioning. You know, sometimes it was logistics or things that I thought might be easier to do than they turned out to be led me to change directions and I wonder if it would have been different. So, you know, for example, at I'm a pediatrician in the Department of Pediatrics and, you know, when I was training in pediatrics, I kind of always assumed because I trained in Boston Children's and Seattle Children's and at Stanford where the Children's Hospital were all like either attached or part of the med school in the hospital, that, you know, I would be one of these kind of jack-of-all-trades where I was uh, seeing patients, 
in the morning and then dropping by the lab and teaching some clinical students. Here in San Diego, uh, the Children's Hospital is about 10 miles uh, from the campus. And it worked great when my lab was uh, smaller and before I started my family. I bounced back and forth between uh, the two campuses, did my clinical work, came back and, and did some things in the lab. But at a certain time, I had some success in the lab and opportunities to get more involved in graduate training, and the lab was bigger. And once you start having you know, 10, 15 people uh, in the lab and trying to keep on top of all those projects, it became difficult to have this, this uh, second life 10 miles. Uh, away. And that made me, uh, who always thought I would be more of a clinician scientist working tightly on patient-associated issues, become uh, more of a basic researcher. And there was some risk in that, and I'd never really trained as a basic researcher. And, you know, there were some hiccups along the way, like my first R01, I submitted and I almost got uh, funded, just missed by a couple of presents. I revised the grant and then I got a worse score uh, than I did the first time. You know, now you can't submit the same grant a third time. It would be a new grant, but uh, back then you could. Back then they were also 25 pages long instead of 10 pages, so it was a little bit of a slog. And I could have easily dropped out there. So I faced some adversity, but had friends who encouraged me and kept it going. It hasn't always been smooth. You know, I've worked for an entire year once uh, on a mutant that I thought was leading me to a super exciting phenotype. And it turned out that this mutant had a spontaneous mutation elsewhere in the genome that was really responsible for the, the virulence phenotype that I was studying, but the genetics in the organism at the time didn't really allow a complementation. We didn't have whole genome sequencing to know. So, you know, when you kind of have nine months of research that really is a complete red herring, that uh, happen, but you learn from those lessons. You know, now when the tools are available, I'm very scrupulous and uh, careful, and I think I always have that in the back of my head as a possibility, so I don't let that happen uh, to my, my graduate students. But I think, you know, you're playing the long game. You're never guaranteed that any one paper or any one grant is going to reach the right audience. And a lot of it you just have to recognize is not because of the inherent quality of that product, but a little bit of the luck of the draw with reviewers. They may not have understood it very well, or maybe the reviewer who is reviewing your grant also has a revised version of a, of a really well-written grant that they just have to give a better score this time kind of luck of the draw. You just got to take a lot of shots on goal, believe in yourself, accept feedback. And I think it's a rewarding career. You have to have personal accountability, which I think is the one thing when you asked about features um, of the students who will have success is that kind of personal accountability. Like if you, if you look at the difference, say, between an industry job or clinical medicine and basic research, basic research, we have complete freedom of studying. You get to choose what you want to study. And that's a tremendous privilege to have that freedom. When you're working on a company, you're going to be working as a team to achieve a specific goal and you're going to follow that towards development of a useful product. And you can't just go follow some story because you think it's interesting that won't have practical value. As a doctor, you don't get to pick who comes to your emergency room. You've got to take care of those patients. But in the company and in the clinical setting, the accountability is built into the job. 
you can't be part of a company and just start working at 10% effort you know, for a couple of weeks. Immediately, the whole team would know because you're having meetings and you're all working together towards a common goal. Obviously, you can't not show up in the clinic or only take care of your favorite patients or the most interesting patients. You have to find some way to create that same kind of accountability in the academic pursuit, which is really challenging. But you remember, you wrote a grant, and you know most of these grants are funded by taxpayers. And what do the taxpayers want? They want research on an important medical question and timely communication of that information back. And I honestly think that that is a pack that we have to hold to. And you have to have accountability on that regard. So the grant is not for you to be personally fulfilled. We're actually trying to create something for the public good. You have jobs as an educator. Obviously, you can pursue exciting and challenging hypotheses. But you also have to be efficient at communicating your results back uh, in terms of papers, which means even the, the boring stories need to be finished. And you should always be thinking about which part of my work is closest to a submitted manuscript and pushing that over the line before constantly changing and working on different topics. If you don't have personal accountability to be productive, I mean, ultimately, it's not sustainable, right? You can't be having mediocre productivity and keep getting grants at the 10th and 15th percentile that the NIH does. You have to have excellent productivity. But since you're often your own boss, you have to develop that kind of accountability. So I try to get my trainees to recognize that, recognize how important that is to long-term success in academics. Clearly, there's a subset of trainees for which that is second nature. And I know from the outset that they're going to be great academics and thrive and know exactly what they need to do to be a successful PI. Others have the potential, but do need some training on all those soft skills of being a successful lab person. They have the smarts. They understand the science. They give a great lab meeting. But, you know, how do you take your unit efforts and turn that into the type of work products that will benefit the largest audience, benefit the public in general for the new scientific knowledge, but also benefit your trainees? A lab that generates a lot of papers means that the individual trainees are having first author papers and finishing their thesis in three to four years instead of, you know, six to seven years. And all of these things are, I think, very important. You kind of alluded to what your answer would be to this question, but I'm still going to ask it. Do you believe that luck or hard work and skill has contributed more to your success? Well, there's certainly been a lot of luck. And you know, part of the luck is just in getting great trainees not exactly sure why certain trainees, especially early in their career, chose to work with a young pediatrician and fairly novice scientist who was just uh, launching their lab, but early people like um, Kelly Duran, who's now a professor in the University of Colorado, or George Liu, who had a great career at Cedar sinai and is now back as the chief of pediatric infectious disease here. Those were brilliant young scientists who had better CVs than me at the time they joined my lab as uh, postdocs. So I would call that luck coming across these people and somehow having a good click personality-wise. Now, I think they made great decisions and they did great science that launched long-term careers, but it was still pretty lucky for me to compete with those people. Some of the scientific discoveries we've had in the lab were 
you know, really pure uh, happenstance where we had something that wasn't working and then we thought about it and then discovered a new mechanism or a new principle. Being open to collaborations um, at scientific interfaces, I think is also great. I've had a long collaboration, Kellen, with your graduate mentor, Rich Gallo, where his uh, expertise in uh, skin biology and protein chemistry and coastal immunology interfaced with our microbiology, allowed us to make some early discoveries about the antimicrobial peptides role in innate immunity. And now we're more than 20 years uh, into a, a continuous grant program on that area. And uh, I think that maybe a little bit from my medical training, you know, doctors know a little bit about a lot of things and you're curious and not afraid to work at, at different interfaces. It's allowed me to collaborate with people all over the UCSD general campus, even down at the Institution of Oceanography, over in bioengineering. And I think a lot of our nicest science has come at those interfaces between my perspective as a doctor and on host pathogen interactions with that of a basic cell biologist, a basic uh, structural biologist, glycobiologist, systems biologist, nanoengineer. And I think that often that's where you get true novelty. It depends on having great trainees, right? Because somebody has to have the um, enthusiasm and, and courage to bridge the two disciplines, to go to the two different lab meetings, to solve the kinks uh, that are arise when you're, you're trying to blend two disciplines. But the product tends to be almost de facto novel and bring new insights. And I think that that, that has been an exciting area too. That's a little bit my nature. I'm from a personality. I kind of have a, a gregarious curiosity to work at these interfaces. My university lends itself to that. That may not have been possible if I was in a more focused uh, research institute or a smaller university. But uh, I think it, it blends with my skill set and my personality. So there's a little bit of design to that. But a lot of these collaborations happened, you know, just fairly randomly. I, I went to a seminar. I, I saw something interesting. I shot the speaker an email afterwards, and that led to a, a new interface project. So just got to keep your eyes open, I think, out there in science these days. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Victor. I, I think we're nearing our three o'clock time limit. So unless there's anything else you want to add, this has been awesome. People listening will get a lot out of it. There's still several things on the list that we could talk about. So maybe eventually we could do a round two. If, yeah, round two. If the, the, if the listeners that. want it, I'm yeah, sure they will. Cover the left side of my brain. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Victor.